welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is produced with the general public, patients, and healthcare professionals in mind. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Matsui, who is the Director of Clinical and Translational Research and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Texas at Austin Dell Medical School. With over 140 peer-reviewed publications and numerous awards recognizing her research accomplishments, Dr. Matsui's research focus surrounds population health and the impact of environmental exposures on asthma and allergic conditions. In addition, Dr. Matsui serves on the editorial board of the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and is chair of the section of Allergy and Immunology of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Lastly, Dr. Matsui has her own podcast titled The Effort Report, which recently published their 100th episode. And we're going to talk about that hopefully towards the end of today's conversation. Dr. Matsui has graciously agreed to join us today to discuss the very timely and important topics surrounding autumn asthma exacerbations. Dr. Matsui, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and welcome to our show. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I think this is going to be great. And, you know, we're recording this in September of 2019, so I, I think it, it couldn't be more timely. Now, um, I'd like to start by really talking about sort of the, the broad scope. And if if you could please describe for us the impact that asthma has on a population level. And we can limit that to the United States, if you like, or whatever you'd like to discuss. But give us a sense. How many people are we talking about that are affected by asthma? And also, how does this contribute to healthcare utilization? Right. And I, I, I'm so glad that you asked that question because I think oftentimes, unless um, you have a personal experience or close relative with asthma, it can be perceived as an annoyance and someone just having to use their rescue inhaler from time to time. And other than that, it's controlled. But it affects a, a large number of people in the U.S., 25 million people, and about 6 million of those are children. And for those who are kind of statistics geeks, you can go to the CDC website and they have a lot more uh, information and, and detail about the statistics. But overall, this means roughly 1 in 12 people has asthma. And for children in a classroom size of, say, 24, on average, there'll be two kids in that classroom with asthma. And the prevalence in sort of the 12 to 14-year age range is about 12%. So that means in a middle school classroom, one in eight will have asthma. But I want to also point out in particular that there are some groups of people who are disproportionately affected by asthma. So in the pediatric age range, it's boys. Among adults, it's women. But in particular, among black Americans, African Americans, and Puerto Rican children, the prevalence is 12% or so. And among those living in poverty, it's also about 12%. And so that, that that's a substantially greater prevalence um, than the general population. And even more concerning is that in some communities, as many as one in four children have asthma. So as you know, I used to live in Baltimore, and many of the neighborhoods in Baltimore had among their pediatric population, roughly 25% of the children having asthma. Um, so there's a major health disparity issue with respect to asthma. And I think you also asked about kind of how that sets up people to have a greater kind of burden of disease or morbidity. And about half of those with current asthma report having one or more attacks in the past year. And this, again, is data from the CDC. So that's pretty remarkable that half of people with asthma are having an asthma attack of some kind, and that will interfere with work or school, may require an emergency department visit or a hospitalization. And in, in terms of what we know about hospitalizations, we know that about 11 per 10,000 patient years of, of people, and I'll, talk, I'll break that down a little bit. So 10,000 people, person years or patient years, 
is the equivalent of 10,000 people being observed for one year. So if you observe 10,000 people with asthma for a year, about 11 will be hospitalized. About 74 per 1,000 will have an ED visit. And the adult, these are for children, the adult figures tend to be about a third to a half less than those pediatric figures. Those numbers are really impressive. Uh, to help us sort of better understand, where does that relate to, say, other common causes for emergency room visits or hospitalizations? Would you put asthma in the top 10, the top five? So for children, it's in the top five. So respiratory visits in the emergency room are by and large, as not exclusively, but by and large asthma related, and those are among the top five. The others are uh, things like injuries, gastroenteritis, um, fever, or, or, or the other main reasons for emergency room visits. Okay, so you're describing really a, a condition that affects millions and millions of people, both children and adults, and it sounds like they're hot spots, especially with, um, it, it sounds like inner city and, and more urban areas uh, more than anything, and also a condition that is a leading cause of uh, why people go to the emergency room. Um, that sounds like a big problem. It is, and, and I, I think it might be helpful to talk about mortality or fatalities mm. from asthma because we don't talk about that very often because it's fortunately, at least among children, it's really pretty rare. But I do want to point out that in the U.S., roughly between 150 and 200 children per year die from asthma. And in our particular field of allergy, asthma, and immunology, we know that about the same number of kids die from food allergy every year. And I think that there is appropriately a lot of attention on preventing food allergy-related deaths, but there is less attention paid to, you know, in terms of like a spotlight put on deaths from asthma among children. I'm really glad you mentioned that. Thank you. Uh, you're right. It, it is something that we often gloss over and don't recognize, and it, it definitely warrants our attention. And I, I can't wait to dive into some of the reasons why um, we're seeing that and, and things that relate to that. But So now that we have the background and we have a, a, an idea of how prevalent and what a big problem this is, help our listeners better understand how do they actually diagnose asthma? Is there just some blood test or some x-ray that can be done? or you know, how, does, how do you get to that diagnosis in the first place? Wouldn't it be great if we had a test? <laughs> um, it would make our patients and their families' lives better and our lives better, but there is no test that determines whether someone has asthma or not. And so um, the phrase, of course, that we use is it's a clinical diagnosis. That's not such a helpful phrase for patients and families, but essentially what it means is that if a person has symptoms that are consistent with asthma, and respond to asthma medications, and there's not some under, other underlying cause, then it's asthma. Um, so essentially, it's a lung disease where there's inflammation in the airways. And I describe inflammation often as if you know someone who has eczema or you've ever had like a skin infection and it's red and tender and warm, um, a little bit swollen or puffy, that's what's going on in the lungs when someone has asthma. Um, and so that inflammation then manifests as recurrent respiratory symptoms, so coughing, wheezing, chest tightness, and those symptoms in someone who has asthma respond to asthma treatment. Um, lung function testing, it's worth saying a word about, can help provide supporting information for a diagnosis. But many kids, when they come in for you know a visit with their pediatrician or with an asthma specialist, they typically will have normal lung function. And the times that you may see a decreased lung function is really when they're having a significant exacerbation. Um, so normal lung function tests do not rule out or exclude asthma as a diagnosis, particularly in kids. So, and you mentioned the symptoms and things like that. So what are some of the more common symptoms, especially uh, in kids that people will recognize? Coughing, chest tightness, uh, wheezing, sometimes there's coughing that sounds more like throat clearing, so that can also be a manifestation of asthma. And is this something that, you know, people will cough for a couple of weeks, uh, you know, once a year, or, or are they going to have symptoms more frequently, or is there variability in there? And right. what are some things that kind of people can watch for? Yeah, cough is tough. So um, there is a lot of variability in terms of 
kind of the symptom of cough as it relates to asthma. So certainly sometimes people will get a, a cold, an upper respiratory infection, and they may have an episode once a year where they cough for a couple of weeks afterwards, but they're not having any other significant symptoms. And that is probably more related to just a post-viral you know, condition. In other words, you catch a cold, you have a little bit of cough for a couple of weeks, and it happens maybe once a year. Um, and, the, and the symptoms are not more severe. Um, you can also have cough variant asthma, where you have a cough that comes and goes. <laughs> and it's not the, the, the temporal pattern is not once a year. It's that they'll spe you'll spend a few weeks coughing, and then maybe a week or two it'll settle down, and then it will come back. And sometimes in cough variant asthma, you know, it gets missed because there may not be the other associated symptoms in terms of chest tightness or wheezing or feeling short of breath. Um, so that's a tip that someone might have asthma. And then cough can also be a part of, a, of the whole constellation of symptoms that includes the wheezing and the chest tightness. And typically what happens is if, if a child with asthma starts having asthma that's maybe starting to get a little bit out of control, it will often start with coughing, and then it'll start progressing to maybe chest tightness and asking for albuterol or the rescue medication inhaler. Um, and then by the time that you know someone hears the wheezing, not through a, a stethoscope, but just by sitting next to the child, that is kind of an exacerbation or a flare of the asthma that's probably been going on for a, 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 at least a few days. Mm, okay. It, it, it sounds like it can be subtle uh, or it can be more extreme, and there's a lot of variability in regards to how frequently it can happen. Um, you know, I, I often hear from a lot of parents or even other you know, referring physicians and providers that you can't diagnose asthma until a child is a certain age. Uh, what, do you say, what do you say to that? I, this would be a great forum to disabuse people of that notion. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a clinical diagnosis, and um, toddlers, so very young children, can meet the clinical definition of asthma. And certainly I see children of all ages, um, including you know infants and toddlers that have recurrent coughing, wheezing that responds to asthma medication and that doesn't have another explanation and they have asthma. Yeah, thank you for uh, sort of, uh, I like your term, disabusing that notion. <laughs> Lots of misconceptions. Yeah. And then one other misconception I'd like to address with you while we're, while we're on this topic of the diagnosis. Um, I see a lot of uh, physicians uh, who are afraid to use the big bad A word and they don't use the diagnosis of asthma. Can you discuss some of the, the factors that are sort of revolve around that? Is it discomfort with the, making the diagnosis? Is it favor of other terms like reactive airway disease or bronchitis? Or, or what are some of, the thing, some of the issues that you see? I think there, you know, my speculation is there are a couple of, of reasons behind the reluctance to use the A word or asthma. One is that people just are, are reluctant to apply what they perceive as a label that suggests that child, you know, has a health condition that's going to be a lifelong health condition. And the truth of the matter is, is that the majority of, you know, young kids like preschoolers who would meet the clinical de definition of asthma do not continue to persistently wheeze. And so labeling it asthma does not preclude, a, you know, a, a better path, a better kind of natural history of, of the health condition or the disease. Related to that, they're also reluctant to label that as asthma because they know that, you know, the majority of the preschoolers who you see wheeze just in response to cold viruses, the majority will out, kind of, quote, unquote, outgrow that. Um, so it has to do with this reluctance of applying a term that they believe may send a message to parents that this is a lifelong condition when it may not actually mean that. Um, interestingly enough, I learned, and I don't know whether this is true in all EMRs, but I learned something about a year ago, which is that if you click on reactive airways disease, 
that the code that's attached to that study, that uh, clinic visit, is still an asthma diagnostic code. Yes, I learned that as well, and I, I find that fascinating. Of, right. Uh, yeah, so, right. <laughs> so, so even if you choose reactive airways disease as a diagnosis, that's not how actually, it actually gets recorded in the electronic medical record. Right. You can call it what you want, but the child knows they have asthma, and the EMR knows they have asthma. Exactly. <laughs> Um, now, you, you just mentioned that uh, respiratory viruses um, can trigger asthma symptoms. But we'll, let's talk about other triggers. So what, what can people sort of be aware of? And um, so what are the more common triggers, especially in kids and also in adults? And also, uh, you know, can those triggers, do they affect everybody or can they change over time? Give us some insight into that. So in addition to respiratory viruses, allergens are a major trigger and both indoor and outdoor allergens, uh, pets, uh, pests like mice and cockroaches, dust mites, pollens, and then um, fungi, which, you know, the kind of lay term or the common term for, for fungi is molds, and those can be indoor or outdoor. Uh, pollution, so that includes indoor pollution like secondhand smoke exposure, as well as outdoor pollution, and then others include uh, stress and exercise can be a trigger also of asthma symptoms. What role does weather play with asthma? Because I, I know we're reaching hopefully a wide audience that lives in different climates and experiences right. different weather patterns, but how can that you know, affect somebody with asthma? Yeah, weather is complicated because um, there are a couple of things going on. So what you worry, what, what you think about, so if, if I am talking to a patient and the family, um, I often hear it's common that, oh, when the weather changes, his asthma seems to flare. And there are people who have tried to understand whether there are specific changes in weather conditions, and those things include things like temperature and humidity, which directly affect asthma. And there's some suggestion that they do, but more often than not, that is a marker of something else, like the start of respiratory viral season. And one sort of tip that tells you that or a hint at that is that if you're in sort of a North America, Northern Hemisphere climate or area, the respiratory viral season starts in the fall, and that's where you see the peak of exacerbations. And so it is associated with the fall season, but it's the viruses that are circulating that cause the exacerbations. Whereas if you're in, uh, you know, kind of more tropical countries, they have circulating respiratory viruses, but much less so in, an, in a less seasonal pattern. Um, and so you won't see the same sort of seasonal pattern for asthma exacerbations. So the take-home is, I think, certain features of weather may affect asthma, but more likely than not, when you observe that someone's asthma tends to flare under certain weather conditions, often that is a clue that there's some other cause that, that is associated with that weather condition. But I do want to say a word, and I don't know if you want to come back to this later, about thunderstorm asthma, though. So that's oh, a, no, I, I think that's a fascinating topic, so please, um, I'd, love, I'd love to hear more. So the one um, particular weather um, condition that is known to cause severe, you know, asthma exacerbations that can be very severe and actually lead to fatal asthma attacks is what's called thunderstorm asthma. And essentially what happens is that a, when a, a thunderstorm um, hits, then there's an idea that there's a chemical reaction going on in the air because of the presence of lightning, et cetera, that interacts with pollen allergens and that it may break the pollen allergens into smaller pieces so that instead of just staying in your nose, they can go further down into the airway. And so they can cause, so this thunderstorm condition, like the classic scenario is someone that just has hay fever with po that pollen and they don't really have asthma or they have very mild asthma because the pollen particle sizes are too big to penetrate into their lungs. And then a thunderstorm comes along during the season when that particular pollen they're allergic to is present, and um, they develop a significant asthma exacerbation. So uh, there was an outbreak of thunderstorm asthma in Australia, 
I think a couple of years ago now, that made international headlines and there were fatalities because of the thunderstorm asthma and the emergency rooms were kind of overrun, really, and overwhelmed with the number of people presenting with asthma exacerbations during that time. Yeah, that is so fascinating. And I, and I believe we've seen that even in Atlanta and perhaps the United Kingdom, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's the time frame typically? Is that something people need to worry about, uh, you know, for days and days after a thunderstorm? Or is it pretty, you know, a pretty acute event? It's a pretty acute event, and it is a pretty rare event. Um, and there are things that you can do to be prepared, like make sure that you have your rescue inhaler with you. And if you know that's a, a bad pollen season for you, and there's a thunderstorm, pay close attention to the development of symptoms so that. You could use your rescue inhaler, and if it's not doing the trick or things are progressing, you can go to an emergency room. Mm, Okay. Now, going back to the triggers for a second, you mentioned a whole host of different triggers. Can exposure to these things cause um, chronic symptoms over time, such as if you you are allergic to a pet and there's a pet inside the home, or is it only a cause of acute exacerbations? Right. So I love this question um, because it's, both and depends on kind of the particular trigger that we're talking about and then also um, on the conditions of the of the patient. And so the particular trigger, so for cold viruses, those are pretty acute events because you catch a cold virus, like rhinovirus is the most common cold virus, and everyone's had a cold, whether you have asthma or not, and you understand that there's a time course to that that may, you know, you may feel pretty lousy for a few days and then gradually over maybe 7 to 10 to maybe 14 days it resolves. And so that's not typically going to cause chronic symptoms. Now, kids on average get about seven colds a year. So what may be perceived as chronic symptoms from a virus is that one viral infection that clears and then they get the next viral infection. Allergens can do both, and, and how they act depends in part on the exposure pattern. So if you are someone who is allergic to cats and you live with a cat, then you're being chronically exposed and that sets you up then, you know, for a risk of an exacerbation when there's like another trigger or exposure that you that you have. If you're cat allergic and let's say you, you don't live with a cat and you don't have a lot of cat exposure, you can then you know, go to someone's house for to go over to play or spend the night, and they have a cat, and uh, and we hear this all the time as pediatricians, and the the child is having an acute exposure to an environmental allergen, and then develops acute symptoms and a pretty significant exacerbation. All right, that's a, I think that's a great explanation, and I, I want to go back to this term exacerbations because people listening may not completely understand what that means. Is this the same thing as as an asthma attack? Uh, and if so, what's actually going on inside the lungs during an exacerbation? Right, that, so that's a great question. I have a colleague who is a faculty member in the School of Communication, and and she always gives me a hard time about using the word exacerbation. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, Attack is a commonly used word um, in place of exacerbation. And essentially what an exacerbation is, is uh, some a, a person has kind of a background level of symptoms that they have, and they have, you know, it may be acutely over a matter of hours or days, a clear worsening of their symptoms. So it's not that they had a day where they had some coughing after exercise and they took their albuterol and then another week went by and that happened again. It's typically a, a pretty uh, defined event and that it occurs not just over a couple of hours one day, but typically over a few days. There are formal definitions that are used for research purposes, but I don't necessarily find them particularly helpful when talking to patients about exacerbations. Um, so what's going on when they happen? Um, the like I'll I'll talk about kind of an exposure scenario as one example. So if someone has chronic you know exposure to an allergen that they're allergic to, they're known to have asthma. Um, we'll I think we'll get to controller medications later, but they're on their daily controller medication. But maybe they're having a few symptoms here and there. And then school starts and cold viruses are circulating and they catch a cold virus 
and then you know the combination of those two things um, causes them to start coughing when they first get the cold, and then they start getting chest tightness and using their rescue inhaler, and then they start wheezing, and then they're using their rescue inhaler, you know, every four hours or so, and then eventually uh, they may need um, an oral steroid burst, as we call it, or um, the the inhaled controller medications or corticosteroids, and when someone's having an exacerbation, we can give them a higher dose in oral form for a few days to keep the exacerbation uh, from getting worse and hopefully keep them out of the hospital, for example. So that so it's really more of a descriptive um, characterization for exacerbation um, that I use. I don't know if 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 you use different definitions when you're talking to families? Well, yeah, I think one of the things I, I try to highlight, and um, I love that you mentioned that exacerbation is a, a tough word. I agree. I, I think that caused a lot of confusion, so thank you for clarifying, is I, I try to talk about the two components of really the inflammation, as you mentioned, the need to use um, higher doses of steroids or oral steroids, and also the squeezing of the muscles and the, and the constriction, and that's why we need to use a lot of albuterol to help open them up. Right, right. So, the, And the mechanism exactly... I'm glad you brought that up. So the inflammation is being triggered by the virus or the allergen or the ex- the exposure that has set things off. And then there are muscles around the airway, and you think of the airway as a tube. And if there's inflammation there, you're trying to breathe through, say, a smaller straw because the lining of the airway tube is swollen and has inflammation. Um, but when the muscles around the tube get irritated from the inflammation and other exposures, they tighten down and contract, and so they squeeze that airway tube so it's even smaller, so then um, you're trying to breathe through an even smaller straw. Um, and so that, I think, is it, it's those two things, and as you pointed out, the, there are different classes of medications that target either the muscle contraction that's, that's sort of acutely or quickly closing the airways down, or the inflammation, which sort of builds up chronically over time, then there's a second set of medications to target that aspect. I like that straw explanation. I think that works really well. I'm going to I'm gonna borrow that from you if that's okay. Yes, just be sure to trademark it, right? Like. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'll show you your picture every time. <laughs> okay. Totally well, kidding. <laughs> Let's go back to the, the overall topic of, of this conversation, which is really the autumn asthma exacerbations and the spike in, in, in symptoms this time of year. Um, is this a common time when we see the exacerbations? And, and if so, you mentioned the viral illnesses. Uh, is that the main factor here? Are there other factors at play? That is the main factor. And what's interesting is that, um, and again, maybe I'm getting a little too math geeky here, but you can um, predict when uh, the rhinovirus, which is the main cold virus that triggers, you know, that causes asthma attacks, um, by the number of days that kids have been in school or when they're out of school. And so there's this kind of um, coming together of kids being together in, in close environments and many kids being together at the same time that viruses are circulating and so a couple weeks after school starts is when you start to see this uptick in asthma attacks and emergency department visits for asthma attacks. And then they, uh, they, they kind of get a little bit lower in the winter months, typically in many places in kind of temperate climates. And then there's another uh, smaller peak in the spring. There are certainly other factors um, that can play a role. I think mainly for the fall season, they're more likely and more commonly cofactors that um, and sort of enhance the possibility that that cold virus will turn into an asthma attack. And those are cofactors are things like air pollution exposure, allergen exposure, um, those sorts of things. Mm, and uh, what's the dominant airborne allergen that's outside during this time of the year usually? Ragweed is probably the most famous one, but it's it's weeds. So the weeds typically pick up in late summer or early fall. Um, and certainly, you know, ragweed-associated asthma is a well-known phenomenon and can certainly contribute to asthma attacks in the fall. Mm. They're, I, also, they're also uh, mold exposure. So 
raking of leaves and having leaves in pile, you know, that's a that's a place where mold likes to grow. And you certainly hear uh, not infrequently kids were jumping into piles of leaves um, and their asthma flared and in, in a child that's known to be mold allergic. So that's another trigger. And the mold is not just in the pile of leaves. I just talk about that story because it um, kind of illustrates a clear event of mold exposure, but we have, you know, mold that is in the air outdoors um, that may not be obvious that someone's being exposed at that time because it's circulating in the air and, and we can't see it. You know, it's microscopic. Mm. Oh, I love how you highlighted the uh, self-proclaimed math geek, but I, I, I love that part of it. So when kids go back to school and they start sharing viruses, is that something that it's happening around the world, or is it really just certain areas? And do we see the same spike in autumn exacerbations regardless of where people live? So it happens in temperate climates. So it happens in the southern hemisphere, say in Australia, although their fall, of course, is our spring in the northern hemisphere. So their peak is this, happens during the same season as our season, but it happens in what we would consider to be spring months. So April tends to be a bad month there. In more tropical areas uh, that are near the equator, because uh, they don't have these clear kind of seasonal changes in weather, they don't have a clear viral season. Um, they have more kind of endemic circulation of a virus that um, can contribute to exacerbations at different times of year. So it's a, it's a kind of combination of both the onset of the colder weather, which um, makes the viruses happier, and all the kids going back to school at the same time. Mm. Well, now that we've spent you know almost thirty minutes or so discussing all of the problems with asthma right. <laughs> and, and and the major issues that it can cause, uh, help us better understand what, what what are some things that parents of children or adults who have asthma what can they do to help prevent these autumn asthma attacks? So, um, self monitoring and preventive care, and it's so hard because I know in my own life I get very busy. I have a personal to do list, and sitting on that list has been you know, make a doctor's appointment mm -hmm. for far too long. And so uh, our lives are busy. It's hard to think, okay, I need to figure out when to take off of work and do I need to pull my child out of school to have an asthma, you know, checkup or evaluation. But that is key along with understanding and recognizing the signs of uncontrolled asthma. And I'll have to say I have not had many patients understand or have heard the following, which is that if their child is having, you know, on average more than two days a week of asthma symptoms, including coughing episodes, or waking up more than once or twice from asthma symptoms a month, then that is a sign that their asthma is not under good control and is a sign that they may need more intensification of their, like, daily controller or preventive anti-inflammatory medication. And so if you can recognize the uncontrolled asthma, and that um, is for patients and, and parents to recognize that, but as well as keeping a regular asthma follow-up visit so that you can talk about these things with your asthma specialist and they can help you think through whether your child's asthma is not under good control, you can then optimize their medication regimen so that when they enter the fall season, um, they're in the best possible shape to um, have minimal uh, repercussions from the catching a cold virus or rhinovirus, so that I think is the num is the number one thing. And it it's not there's no fancy uh, special pill to take or anything like that. But it's just really hard to do because it boils down to busy lives and um, you know and and human behavior. Um, the, I don't know if you want to add anything. I was going to mention a second. Point. Oh, please. No, please. Uh, so the other thing is getting an influenza vaccine. Mm. So we know that people with asthma who get the vaccine have about a 60 to 75% fewer asthma attacks than those who do not get it. And 
So not only does it just reduce the risk of getting the flu overall for everyone, it reduces the risk of asthma attacks among those who have asthma. So it's really a no-brainer, and um, flu vaccine is uh, starting to trickle out and be available, so go get your flu shot. When is the best time for somebody to get their flu vaccine to offer protection for the season? So um, typically the vaccine is released around the time that's optimal, um, which is starting about now. So you takes you about a couple of weeks for your immune system to respond in a way to the vaccine that you're protected. Um, the flu season does not typically start, and it varies a little bit, but until it's a little bit different than rhinovirus, which is September, October. The flu season is more December-ish, definitely January, February. Um, and I think the other important point is if it's January and you still haven't gotten it, it is not too late to get it mm. because it will afford you some protection even in, you know, in the middle of the season or the end of the season. All right, so it's not too late, but is it? Can you get it too early, or you know, how long does it offer protection for? How long does it last? So the issue with the reason that you have to get it every year is that the type of the virus that circulates may change. So it generally is good for the for the whole season. It's not that it the, the reason you get another shot is not so much that it has worn off. It is more that the viruses that they're expecting to circulate in the next coming year are different. Okay, so every season you have to get a new a new vaccine. Yes. Okay, I think that's a have good you, message. Have, to... have you gotten yours yet, Dave? Not yet. I, I, I gave my first one to a patient this week. We just got our allotment, but I haven't um, mentioned for the employees. How about yourself? Not quite yet. I have a yeah. sticker from last year, though, so I'm waiting for the announcement of flu vaccines <laughs> for employees. Yeah, we should we should be lining up soon, hopefully. Uh, now, you mentioned that we all lead busy lives and it's tough to just maintain the schedule, but how often should somebody with asthma see their physician? So there's um, – this is a great question. So the national guidelines, the U.S. guidelines, have a statement that is something along the lines of you should have a follow-up appointment specifically for your asthma every one to six months. So that recommendation is – quite broad, um, but typically um, I think there are two take-home messages. One, it's important to have asthma follow-up visits. So I think what often happens is kids with asthma um, check in with their pediatrician about their asthma at their well-child check, so there's actually not a lot of time to talk in depth about the frequency of symptoms and so on and so forth. So the most important thing is at least you know, the goal is to have some asthma preventive visits. The second important concept is it really depends on the severity of the child's asthma. So there are some kids who are on a very stable dose of medication and it works very well for them um, and you need to check in with them every six months or so to see how things are going and, of course, um, I always tell my patients if they don't need to wait for six months, if there are questions or concerns, they can call me or message me through the portal uh, before then. But that's a, a stable, you know, patient really once every six months or so. Someone who's really struggling um, to get their asthma under control may need to come in more frequently than that. Um, and certainly soon after a first diagnosis, um, even if the child has mild asthma, I will have asked the families to come in, you know, in just three or four months or so so that we can you know, revisit how things are going, revisit the medication plan, et cetera, et cetera. Speaking of medications, you mentioned this several times. Can you describe the differences between controller medications and rescue medications for asthma? Yes, there's a and there's a whole lot of confusion here, mm -hmm. and it's hard to keep straight. And um, but there are two classes of medications. One class of medication addresses the inflammation that we talked about. So that's mm -hmm. the redness, swelling um, that is lines the airway tubes in the lungs. Um, that medicine does not make you feel better right after you take it. Typically. Um, depending on the form that it's packaged in. And so it's very easy as a patient to quit taking it because it doesn't make you feel better right after. So you don't, you're not getting positive feedback. And it works gradually. So it takes about two weeks of regular use for it to reach its maximum effect. 
So that's a, a everyday medication. Then there's the rescue or reliever inhaler. And that inhaler makes you feel better right afterwards, and you use it as you develop or when you develop symptoms, and it works differently. It does not target the inflammation, but it relaxes those muscles that are surrounding the airway tube so that the uh, airway tube can open up or get wider um, pretty quickly in response to the medication. But the important point is it does not treat the inflammation, so it is an important tool when you have symptoms or during an attack, but it will not treat the inflammation. And ultimately, the long-term goal is to get the inflammation under control so you're less likely to have an attack and so that you need your rescue medication less frequently. And when we talk about things like inhaled steroids, uh, is that a controller or is that a rescue medicine? So that's a controller medication. And so steroid, I know, is a scary word. Um, and I think oftentimes, I know many times I have underappreciated the concerns that patients have about the asthma medications. And I don't have any kind of, you know, magic tricks in terms of talking about risk and benefit, except for that that's sort of the approach that I take in having conversations. But it's, it's an approach about kind of all the decisions we make in life, which is there's a risk of not taking the medication, and then there's a risk of taking the medication. And the risk of not taking the medication, typically speaking, is sleep disruption, exacerbations, winding up in the emergency room, and then actually needing the oral version of that medication several times a year. So you end up just getting just as much, if not more, in terms of dose of steroid by not taking it. The low-dose, you know, inhaled corticosteroids, which control the majority of kids with asthma, has a very, you know, safe side effect profile. So the main thing that people worry about is its effect on height. And so what we do know is that, you know, among a group of kids with kind of mildish asthma who took it from school age into early adult age, they were about maybe a quarter to a third inch shorter on average than the similar kids who got a placebo inhaler. So it does have a you know, small effect on height, but then you weigh that against the risk of, of not taking it. Yeah, and we don't really know what the risk is of somebody who requires multiple prednisone courses throughout a year of how that would impact their height, right? You know, I don't know about specific studies, but I think that there are studies out there that have tried to think about in terms of, okay, if you need three oral steroid bursts, um, what is the potential risk? And, and have identified that there's a risk associated with side effects of steroids for people who are needing multiple oral steroid courses. Yeah. Yeah, so it's always a balance, as you mentioned. I like how you put that. Well, what about the technique? Uh, you know, or, uh, there's different types of inhalers, but for those that um, have more of the propellant and, um, you know, give you the spray, uh, can you just kind of put that in your mouth and start puffing away, or do you recommend, you know, holding chambers or spacers, or tell us more about that? So I, I'll tell a little story, which is I have a colleague on Twitter who one of an ax that he was grinding, and it was a great one, was he was very frustrated with all of these sort of stock photos that were used when people were discussing asthma and the lay media of people using inhalers without spacers <laughs> because he thought it was sending the wrong message, and I completely agree with him. Mm -hmm. um, and that is we know that even adults, it's not just about coordinating when you inhale versus when you compress the inhaler. Adults still, you don't get the dose of the medication into the lungs that is intended to get there. So some studies have shown that um, if you don't use a spacer, the dose you may be getting may be about half the dose that you should be getting uh, because you're not using a spacer. And the spacer or the holding chamber essentially is a tube that when you compress the inhaler, the medication goes into that tube, and it's called a holding chamber because it holds the medicine there. So you can just take regular breaths. That way there's not medication that is you know, floating off in the air around you or not med less medication that's landing in your mouth, for example, um, and, and more of it is going into your lungs. What about when somebody is starting to have symptoms and um, what can we do for them? Uh, any evidence-based approaches to keep them from having a, a bad asthma exacerbation and requiring emergency room care? So there's a lot of interest, um, as you know, in 
doubling, tripling, quadrupling their inhaled corticosteroid dose to try to prevent an exacerbation. And there were a couple studies that came out, I can't remember whether it was a year or two years ago in the New England Journal, that were clinical trials that tried to answer that specific question. And there was a trial in kids and a trial in adults. And overall, um, and they quadrupled and quintupled the dose of inhaled corticosteroids. And overall, it was not beneficial. There were some suggestions that in some cases it might be beneficial in the adult study. But overall, it did not seem to work well. Mm. And what about use of albuterol? Should uh, Do you find that people tend to kind of wait until it's too late to use it? And is it better to use it sort of earlier when symptoms first appear as opposed to waiting for two or three days when they've been coughing and wheezing? Uh, absolutely. I guess I haven't experienced people waiting to take it because because they feel better mm. after they take it. You know, so, they, so they've learned if, if I'm coughing or whatever and I take it, I do feel better. So that's not something I've observed, but it's actually an interesting question of how often that happens. Or do you, Are there any studies that have looked at that? Do you know? I'm not aware of studies, but I can tell you from personal experience that uh, a lot of families um, who you know come to the emergency room and just get a few treatments and then go home, um, they're the ones who have not treated at home. Um, so we see that a lot with just reluctance to sort of self-manage and treat at home. So that's where we spend a lot of our time educating and, and uh-huh. trying to help families say, we can keep you out of this place. We don't want you to come here unless you right. absolutely need us. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, and I haven't, I have not, I mean, there have been times where a child's been at school and started having symptoms and didn't have the albuterol inhaler, but I have not, that's not something that has come up on my radar screen, but it's a okay. great point. Oh, that's good. Uh, you know, speaking of school, so what are some tips for parents when they send their children who have asthma to school, especially with the autumn asthma exacerbations and, and the viral infections that you mentioned? You know, What should they send with their child? How should they communicate with their teacher, school nurse, and any other steps that they should take? So the school, number one, should know that your child has asthma. And then many school districts require or are attempting to require that there's an asthma action plan on file. And that's a good idea because it tells the school health suite, and if there's a nurse there, the nurse, um, how to manage the asthma symptoms if your child's having asthma symptoms at school. Um, So that's critical. And then obviously they need the medication there at, at school as well. And so that's the most critical packet of things to provide. If your child has more... Um, kind of severe asthma that's kind of been, a, you know, more difficult, then, you know, things like talking to a teacher may be helpful because sometimes teachers um, and, and other folks who are not health trained don't recognize that, asthma, that there are asthma symptoms that are occurring. Um, and I know oftentimes I hear, oh, my child was coughing um, and it was sort of disrupting the class, so the teacher asked him to go get a drink of water and come back. So it's important to try to educate the t- teachers that my child has asthma. If he's coughing like this, this is an asthma symptom. And the water fountain is fine if he's thirsty, but hmm. probably it makes more sense for him to go you know, to the health suite or the school nurse. Uh, I think that's great advice. Do you, should parents just wait until their their child has any problems, and if if problems occur before they sort of communicate these things and send their medicine, or is this something that they should do um, prior to the start of the school year? It should happen prior to the start of school year, um, and schools generally have a system of sending out all those forms, requesting that the forms should be filled out. Many schools do it all online now. Not all of them do. Um, and so the reason the schools start asking for that material in August is because they want it in place ahead of time so that they're prepared. So what you don't want to have happen, of course, is have your kid have an asthma attack, have no medication at school, no plan to use the medication at school, and maybe the school doesn't even recognize or know that he has asthma. Mm, that's great advice. I can't believe you know this conversation has gone by so fast for me, and I, I have so much more that I could ask you about asthma, but unfortunately, we're nearing the end of our time. And, and before we go, I, I do, I'd love to hear more about your own podcast, The Effort Report. And I've listened to several episodes, and I really think that it's quite good, and, and um, I enjoy it very much. But tell us, so, you know, what is The Effort Report uh, all about, and how can listeners find it? So it's about life in academia, so it's intended for a pretty niche audience. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, it started because a collaborator and friend of mine, Roger Pang, um, who is a biostatistician uh, faculty member at Hopkins, approached me and asked me if I wanted to do a podcast about life in academia. So it's, it's in, I said yes, and uh, we've been doing it for at least a few years now. We even managed to do it when he was living in Melbourne, Australia on sabbatical. Hmm. Um, and we talk about navigating a career path in academia, so as a faculty person, and in either you know medical academic medical centers as well as you know, he has a PhD and is not an MD, so as well as at non-medical or health-related schools or, or universities. Um, and it's more kind of, I'm not wild about the term soft skills, but it, it's not the, we talk about the things that you would not get by signing up for a career development course at a university, like how do you manage collaborations, or how far ahead should you plan writing a grant, or how to interact with your professional society podcast, as an example. And so for anyone who is interested in academia, feel free to give it a listen. Yeah, and for the, for our listeners out there, I, I want to emphasize that Dr. Matsui here, our, our guest today, is a fantastic person to learn from um, because of all of her accomplishments uh, across so many levels. Um, and she's just really contributing um, so much to medicine in general, but especially with the, the specialty of allergy and immunology, but to learn from her uh, and to and hear these conversations about uh, different ways to, you know, succeed and uh, challenges and pitfalls and career paths, I think it's fantastic. So the effort report, and where can people find it? It's on iTunes, and then it's also on, there's an Android app, I believe, that's called something like Google Podcasts, and it shows up there too. So either of those ways to search podcasts will have it pop up. Okay, great. Well, Dr. Matsui, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today and discuss an important topic of, of asthma uh, that I, I'm sure all of our listeners will find helpful. Um, before we say goodbye, is there anything else you'd like to add? Just thank you very much for the opportunity. It's it's terrific to get a chance to get out of speaking to my niche audience, to a broader <laughs> audience, so I appreciate it. and It's been a lot of fun. Great. Well, thank you again. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.